Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Chris Robart, Chief Commercial Officer of Ambient, and Keith Norman, Head of Technology Partnerships of AWS Energy. Ambient is a SaaS provider helping optimize artificial lift. I think we all have a general idea of what artificial lift is, but there is obviously significant room for improvement here, hence Ambient and their entire business model. And something I think is just plain cool is how we look at the digital world, the advancements in digital technology, and how that is interconnecting and now making something like artificial lift improved and ultimately improving the entire industry. So I'm excited today to get Chris and Keith on here to talk about what artificial lift is and how Ambient and AWS are ultimately improving this vital part of the energy production stream. Chris, Keith, Thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background, and then we'll get a quick introduction to Ambient. Keith, I'd like for you to go first, and then we'll jump to Chris. Yeah, perfect. Thanks, Joe. Uh, yeah, so Keith Norman, um, as you said, head of technology partnerships for AWS Energy and Utilities. So really looking at uh, currently you know, building out those partnerships with technology providers like Ambient. Um, and many others across the industry to solve really critical workflows in oil and gas, renewables, and utilities. So my background um, is uh, 17 years actually in the oil and gas industry at ExxonMobil, uh, where I had the the opportunity to, to kind of work my way all around the kind of the upstream part of the business and um, as a reservoir engineer, a facilities engineer, a project engineer in uh, Angola, Chad, and Nigeria for about a decade. Um, and then was uh, was head of our uh, reservoir, or, sorry, our uh, overall engineering for U.S. upstream uh, businesses uh, for ExxonMobil, and then our vice president of engineering uh, for our Russian affiliates. And then um, had the the good fortune of running our, uh, our our upstream safety, health, and environment organization across the globe for for ExxonMobil uh, up until about 2018. And then uh, for the last uh, four to five years, I've really been in the energy tech startup space here in San Francisco, uh, both on my my own uh, and and then in a variety of startups. And uh, the last 18 months here at uh, at Amazon. Thank you for your introduction, Chris. Let's get your introduction and an introduction to Ambient. Yeah, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll thanks for having me here, Joe. Appreciate it. Uh, Keith, good to, to reconnect with you here. Um, so I'll start with a bit of a personal background and jump onto the Ambient side. Uh, so I guess I've been an entrepreneur for, I think, uh, 
well, I guess around 12 or maybe even 14 years, depending on when you want to start counting. Um, I have built and sold a couple different companies in the upstream oil and gas space focused on, you know, uh, research, software, consulting. Um, but for the last uh, six years or so, uh, I've been involved with Ambien. So I was um, technically not a founder, but let's just call it sort of a co-founder of the Ambient version two, sort of a longer history of Ambient that I won't bore you guys all with here. But um, uh, I guess co-founder sort of version two of Ambient, you know, for around six years ago. Um, so what Ambient does is uh, we're really an industrial IoT platform uh, that provides a number of very high value use cases for uh, for upstream oil and gas operations and production. So you you mentioned artificial lift earlier. So that's those are those are definitely some of the core uh, use cases that we tackle. Uh, you know, for uh, maybe for some background primer for everyone here. So um, artificial lift. You know, all producing oil and gas wells um, at some point in their life uh, require some sort of equipment to help facilitate the lifting of uh, you know fluids, oil and gas up to the surface. Uh, so that's what artificial lift is. There's a handful of sort of key types of artificial lift, um, each of them. And then there's some sort of, you know, hybrids of, of various different types of artificial lift. Uh, but, uh, you know, all of them have their own physics and their own sort of um, equipment and work very differently. So the sort of the, the way that you improve and sort of uh, optimize those systems is, is very different depending on what the, the physical equipment uh, and honestly what the, the physical and geological characteristics are of those wells look like. So what we do is drive productivity, efficiency, um, uh, scalability of how the, 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 these key pieces of equipment are, uh, are managed and uh, utilized within the sort of the context of the broader uh, upstream operations context. So maybe I'll stop there. That is a, a good introduction. And I think that helps paint the picture of why artificial lift, why we're kind of talking about artificial lift and and how that fits into that broader portfolio of understanding and optimizing those that production stream. So the I think we want to start with a baseline, make sure we're all on the same page. And as you pointed out, there's different ideas to artificial lift. So let's just start with a a basic a basic um, definition. What is artificial lift? Yeah, so uh, these are various different types of equipment uh, that are deployed at the wellhead or at the well site to help, uh, really to help lift uh, oil and gas and other produced fluids to the surface of that well to help you know, facilitate the production of whatever whatever the petroleum product is out of that well. And I'll just quote you a few of the key types, right? So if we sort of start from the top of the decline curve, uh, you know, some wells have enough natural energy to just flow naturally. Uh, you know, if these are big conventional wells in the Middle East, then, you know, that might be for quite some time. Uh, but, you know, more commonly, if we're talking about North American wells, you know, they'll, you know, they can flow naturally for, you know, maybe three, six months, but then they'll take either a ESP, an electrical submersible pump, uh, or sometimes if they're, you know, gassier wells, they'll, they'll go straight to a gas lift system. Um, then uh, we've got plunger lift systems. There's some hybrids between gas lift and plunger lift called you know, Paggle and Gapple. That's a gas assisted plunger lift, uh, plunger assisted gas lift. Uh, and then the, I would say the image that most 
people are familiar with when you tell them to picture an oil well as this sort of, you know, pump jack, this nodding donkey thing. Um, so that is, that's a, you know, either a rodless system or a reciprocating rodless system. There's lots of different names for it, but that's sort of the, the, the prototypical piece of artificial equipment that the average, uh, sort of like, let's say lay person is familiar with. Um, there's a few other sort of, uh, wonky systems out there that are a little less common, but that's sort of covers the majority of, uh, of the equipment that's deployed out there on wall sites. All right. Thank you for that, that introduction on those, on those different ideas of artificial lift. Now, with as many as there are, I guess that my next question was going to be how standardized is this equipment? Keith, with your experience before AWS, when you were with Exxon, you worked all around the world and you worked for a a significant period, essentially an entire career in the oil field. So what, I guess the, the big question is, are these kind of standardized pieces of equipment in terms of how we pull out when we switch from from natural flow to an ESP to to a nodding donkey, and how is that kind of standardized across the industry, both from a U.S. perspective but also from a worldwide perspective? Yeah, so it's, I would say the and Chris gave a good overview of sort of the different types of artificial lift. And there's a you know a fairly decent amount of standardization around sort of what what types of artificial lift are available. What are kind of the core parameters if you're going to try to optimize that artificial lift? But as you start to get into each individual asset, each individual reservoir, each individual well, and making those decisions on what's the right type of artificial lift and what's the right way to operate it, you start getting into a into a level of complexity that I think the industry has struggled with for really for decades. And maybe the simple way I, I think about this is, you know, for folks that maybe aren't, haven't been involved in the industry and worked uh, worked with these these types of equipment before, you know, we oftentimes think about optimization in the sense of like a manufacturing line, which is which is a steady state system. You're you're putting an input in, you're you're manufacturing it, you're getting input out, um, and so you're trying to optimize as everything work through that steady state system. Um, Artificial lift and wells are are the exact opposite of that. They're, they're non-steady state systems. Um, you are reacting to what is underground and and the pressure profiles and the, and the flow behaviors. And so these pumps need to be able to, to react to these unsteady state occurrences, which drive a much more complex operating window and a much more higher level of complexity. And so I'll, I'll give you an example of um, one of... Uh, maybe the most profitable activities that I ever um, had, had the opportunity to work on uh, in, in my time in oil and gas was with uh, gas lifted wells. And at the time, these were, you know, we were running hundreds of these uh, across the U.S., um, many hundreds of these. And we would send out crews to go visit each of these wells about once every they would probably get to each well once every three to six months. And every single time somebody would, one of our technicians would walk out there, they'd go out, they'd put their hand on the well, they, they'd listen to it, they'd put their ear next to the well, listen to the vibration, kind of feel it for the temperature at the, at the well head. And then they'd go back and make a few little changes and change the amount of gas going down to help these, these wells lift. And lo and behold, every time, you know, they'd walk away and the well would be producing more. Um, and what we st- started to look at is saying, well, 
and every time they go put their hands on these things, they, they produce more. So we need to do this more often. So we hired more of them and they did this more often. And instead of every three to six months, we had them coming out every two to three months. And every time they did the same thing, put their hand on the well, listened to it, made a few changes and lo and behold, magic produced more, more production and, and ran more efficiently. Um, and so we kept doing this more. It's like, well, man, we got to, let's have them come out every month. Let's have them come out every couple of weeks. And again, every time, and that's the reality that these, these systems are unsteady state. And so you optimize them for a condition at one moment, but within a week or two, the, the system is unoptimized again. And so this is really, I think the, the, the move that we're seeing in the industry now, which is how do we take all of that knowledge and learning from, from those experts who are great at being able to walk out and figure out the problem in the moment. But now how do I get that kind of smarts monitoring these, these assets each and every day, every minute of every day and making those changes continuously um, so that they run more efficiently, so they run with a lower carbon footprint, so they produce more oil and gas, so they produce at a lower cost. And that's really the, the change to this sort of data-driven view of this that's really come from you know, decades of what we've learned of, of how to optimize these unsteady state assets. So that's really, I think that's a great example and a a beautiful picture of what that means to optimize and what it means to optimize from a from an analog point of view almost from that that kind of guess and check reactionary standpoint just out of curiosity because you were talking about hundreds of wells how many wells are on artificial lift in the US or maybe or maybe even worldwide as well so for, for yeah, sorry, Kito, I'll, I'll quote some numbers and feel free. Yeah, yeah. So um, for North America, let's just say there's around a million producing wells on artificial lift. Um, and then worldwide, uh, you know, Russia has its own market. There's a, I think there's a half a million, maybe closer to a million wells there. And then if China has probably another million wells. But then if you look at the rest of the world outside of those three sort of primary areas, maybe you got another half million, two million wells. So I think I just quoted three, 3.5 million. So something in that range. And uh, Keith, you know, if, if you think I've over understated certain uh, geographies, let me know. No, that, that's probably right. So think about this and in, in probably 85% of all wells are on artificial lift. So think about it in the, in the low millions um, of kind of number of wells out there globally. Yeah. So 85% of wells, that's, that's a high percentage and, and, low millions that seems like a lot from i think it from your perspective chris and some numbers maybe looking at ambient and optimizing using using your software what kind of increases do you see as far as percentages of of production increase or how do you how you measure that that success metric yeah, that's uh, so. I'll, I'll quote you some numbers, but then I'll, I'll maybe uh, give you a, a slightly longer answer, which uh, you know is a more complex answer, right? So, uh, from a 
from a direct sort of short answer perspective, we oftentimes, we, we typically deliver uh, sort of production uplift results, let's say anywhere from, I mean, anywhere from very incremental, like 0.5, 1% increases, uh, upwards of six, seven, eight percent increases. Um, so that's the simple answer. The longer answer is, um, you know, all of these wells are on a decline curve. So every single one of them is naturally declining. So, you know, the question of it's fairly easy to evaluate how are you impacting performance or production of that well in the near term, like over a one, two, three month period. Um, but then the question of how are you impacting the performance or the production of that well over a slightly longer period of time um, gets a lot more complicated because now you're you're automatically, you're, you know, maybe there's a short period of time that you've increased the, the production of that well, but it's likely that after, you know, a certain period of time, you're back on, on a decline of some sort. Now, whether you can, um, whether you can positively impact the, the sort of the trajectory of that decline curve and change the sort of the, the rate of decline on that well, or whether you can simply outperform that decline curve that's sort of you know, been established, um, it gets a little bit subjective from that point. Um, but generally, we are able to deliver um, some sort of production uplift. And sometimes that's simply from being able to remove downtime from the system. So to keep these systems running more stably, uh, operating them for, for more periods of time. Um, and other times, it's simply from being able to, to you know, in the plunger lift context, uh, being able to just simply just get more fluid. Or I guess in, in the context of plunger lift, it's about getting gas out oftentimes, get more gas out of that well. So the, the driver, the mechanism by which you improving that production can look a little bit different um, depending on sort of the use case and depending on honestly the the current state of how those sort of wells and systems are being operated when we show up that is that's very helpful to to understand and and see that i guess that aspect of it one thing that i am curious about because the the main focus, I would think, is increasing production and optimizing production. But as we're talking through all of this, and this being the Energy Transition Solutions podcast, one of those key metrics that, that I see value in is the reduction in greenhouse gases or maybe the reduction of energy per barrel of oil produced. Do you have companies coming to you asking about that? in terms of a way of like, we want to decarbonize our production. How can you help us do that? Uh, yes, increasingly that is the case. So um, we just talked about the productivity of the wells. Obviously, you know, the amount of production coming out of the well is is the, the, the EMP producers, you know, revenue and cash flow. So that's of critical importance, right? And if we uh, the, the least of what we need to be able to do, you know, when deploying our solution to, uh, to our customers' wells is at least to be able to demonstrate that we can maintain production and maintain performance, right? You can't always generate uplift. You know, you know sometimes wells are actually being operated quite effectively. Um, uh, more often than not, there are substantial opportunities for improvement. But the other side of the coin is looking at the efficiency uh, of these systems and looking at the sort of reliability of these systems. So, uh, you know, these are all mechanical systems. They all have points of failure and inevitably they all fail. Sometimes there's a failure on some piece of surface equipment, which can be relatively straightforward to repair and, and relatively low cost to repair. 
Other times we're talking about equipment that's downhole. And anytime you're talking about, you know, things downhole that need to be fixed and repaired, that can get, you know, very, very expensive depending on what type of system we're talking about and what type of, you know, point of failure we're talking about. Um, so if you are able to operate these systems in such a way that you are able to either reduce the failure rate uh, or you know, depending on how, you know, different, different players measure it slightly different ways, but um, to ensure that these wells uh, go down less, requiring less, you know, human interventions to go drive out to that well site and go, you know, fix something or turn something back on, or simply just ensuring that the system fails less. So like in the context of a rod lift well, um, over, you know, we, we have empirically demonstrated over sort of long durations of time, two, three, four year periods of time with customers that we can have a substantial impact on that failure rate. So that's, you know, less failures, less money spent on those failures, and that's less time that a well is down being repaired and more time that's up producing. So that's the sort of efficiency and the reliability side. And there's a whole complicated sort of art and science uh, in terms of how people measure and manage that. Um, but I think I'll get to the energy transition side, which is um, efficiency is a critical driver in, you know, uh, uh, managing and optimizing against, you know, energy uh, in uh, uh, energy input relative to sort of your, your product or your production output. Um, so now we get into sort of the, the GHG side. So um, all of these artificial lift applications consume energy, right? Or consume some sort of product, right? In the, in the context of, of gas lift, for example, um, you know, gas lift is, is effective. You're just injecting gas into that well. Uh, now, in order to inject that gas into the well, you got a compressor somewhere, you know, that's, that's running either on electricity or maybe it's running on gas and that's consuming, you know, consuming energy. So if you can uh, optimize the overall system, so you are either consuming less product or consuming less energy, you are, you know, so in the context of a rod lift system, oftentimes we are able to reduce the energy consumption of these pumping units by 10, 15, 20%. We've got some case studies for lower value wells where we're reducing the amount of time these systems are operating by 55, 60%. So that's electricity reduction, right? So that's what you call scope two GHG emission reductions. Um, and they're, you know, close enough to a one for one. So 15 to 20% electricity reduction is, is more or less, you know, 15 to 20% reduction in the GHG emissions coming from the electricity that would otherwise be used. Now, if you look at another use case, plunger lift, um, uh, generally in the context of these plunger lift systems, the way that operators traditionally have, um, a lot of times there's this uh, thing that occurs where basically too much fluid builds up on the well bore and the well loses the ability to continue running that plunger lift system. And then there's a, a human intervention required to basically you know, restart that well and clear out that fluid in that well bore. Generally that involves uh, venting, um, uh, venting the, the, the gas from that well to the atmosphere. And it's a very small amount of gas, but uh, if you have a lot of these points of failure, it's, you know, it's called liquid loading, uh, and you've got a lot of wells, then those little tiny emissions, I think you know, the numbers that we've done, we've worked up with some of our customers is like 20 MCF per venting event. Um, so very, very small in the grand scheme of things, uh, but these numbers start to add up pretty quickly across a large number of wells and across, you know, across a year, for example. So we've got a fairly recently uh, case study and uh, actually a technical paper from uh, from SP that we just recently presented with CNX Resources. They're a uh, a uh, Marcellus West Virginia producer of gas. And the case study that we sort of collaboratively assembled with them through our sort of pilot and larger scale commercial deployment with them uh, was almost a 50% reduction in the amount of uh, venting, therefore a almost 50% reduction in the amount of methane emissions uh, from those wells. And I think when you 
you know, when you start to put the numbers together, I think it translated into about 18 metric tons of CO2 equivalent uh, on a per well per year basis. So again, these little things start to add up quickly. And next thing you know, you can have pretty substantial impact from a GHG uh, perspective. Yeah, that sounds like a, a very significant value there when you're talking about reduction and and CO2 equivalents and the reduction aspect. Keith, I'm I'm curious from your perspective, with something like this, one thing that I've been realizing more and and talking with all of the various guests, one of the biggest aspects to safety and really to that that scope to emissions reductions is reducing windshield time. Whereas your previous example that you gave, you are actually increasing windshield time to increase production. And I feel like this is almost like a, a flip on that. You want to increase production while also decreasing windshield time. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, a hundred percent agree. And that that's really where, where we're seeing kind of the, the data layer come in is that example I gave you, you know, that's sitting, you know, going on probably eight, nine years ago now where you just didn't have access to, to that information and that data to be able to go, to go make these decisions. And so, you know, when you don't have access to that information digitally and, and in real time, that's when you got to drive and, and put people out there. And, and it's not just windshield time, but that's when you put people in harm's way. That's when safety incidents occur. Um, and so, this is sort of a, a you know a beautiful scenario where you're getting better profitability, more production. You're getting lower cost. You're getting a safer work environment because you're sending less people out there. These things are running more effect with, with less downtime and and downtime events or when you need to go put people in harm's way to go do work, and you're doing it with you know substantially less carbon footprint and, and emissions. Um, I mean, those numbers are not tiny in terms of, of how much you're taking out from each individual well. And then we scale that to the to this to this global, you know, well count that, that we talked about earlier. So really transformative when you can put all of those things and line up together to, to go solve that. And I think that's where we're seeing that tipping point in the industry around decarbonizing. Sometimes we often call this uh, operationalizing decarbonization, but getting from the the theory of I, I want to drive towards net zero to in practice, what can I do as a business to try to drive this? And especially as a natural resource, sort of energy intensive business to, to go drive these net zero outcomes. It's really sitting on the back of, of a lot of the insights and the data infrastructure that you can put in place to start to drive just what, what Chris described. And it and it's sort of win, 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 win outcomes across across the board of every metric that you're looking at if you are you know owning and operating assets. Yeah, I definitely see the the value there and, and really how the present day digitalization and the new cloud infrastructure and how all of that makes this possible and enables the ability to really understand and, and see what is happening. I'm realizing one thing that we really haven't dug into, Chris, if you want to comment on it, how exactly does ambient work and what what exactly do y'all do in terms of really optimizing that that artificial lift or really looking at the whole production supply chain aspect yep yep so uh we you know the 
sort of buzz right after you early in the discussion was we are an industrial IoT platform. So we ingest data ultimately coming from the control systems of the equipment uh, for this artificial equipment, artificial lift equipment that's already deployed out there. Uh, now, at this point, typically we are ingesting that via our customers' existing SCADA or data acquisition systems. So we stand up some data integrations with their SCADA system, whether that's Signet or Ignition or Xbox or whatever they may have out there that they're using for you know, monitoring that data and controlling the, the, the wells and the systems that are out there. We also historically, we've also had an edge device based deployment where we just deploy our own little box out directly to that control system. And we sort of you know, uh, uh, create that data acquisition uh, layer uh, on our own. So uh, that's a, at this point, that's a relatively small part of what we do. Uh, we're, our real focus is really on ingesting data from our customers' existing uh, data acquisition systems now. So that's not only SCADA, that's also their production accounting system. That's their well data systems like WellView. Um, and uh, you know, sometimes increasingly as our customers have um, other sort of cloud environments set up uh, with you know AWS and some of the other cloud providers, we can also start to sort of ingest data through those methods and methodologies. Uh, so we're effectively ingesting the data from the various different sources uh, and bringing it into our sort of environment. Um, and we have a bunch of you know pre-built models um, that is, so first off, we're doing a bunch of work to, to contextualize that data, do a bunch of pre-processing it and you know add that additional context layer. And then from there, it flows into a whole bunch of different physics models, a bunch of AI-based models. Some of them are intended to determine when there's anomalies occurring, so non-normal sort of events occurring on that well, whether those are surface events, you know, downhole events. Uh, some of that is determined, uh, uh, the goal is to determine what is the current operating state of that well, you know, sort of a classifications approach of is this well being operated optimally or not? Uh, are there opportunities to improve the, the production, improve the efficiency of that well? Um, so that's our typical approach is a bit of a hybrid of, you know, a physics and a, and a data driven approach or, or an AI based approach. Um, and then, you know, where we really start to close the loop, you know, close that, that human based loop, um, or I guess close the machine based loop, I guess I should say, um, and really start to deliver scalable value is when we go that next step towards a, a fully, uh, a fully closed loop approach or a fully autonomous approach. So we can either through, uh, you know, an edge device based deployment or through our customers SCADA systems, uh, we can actually uh, not only ingest that data from all of their systems, but actually send commands back down to that control system that's at the well controlling that equipment that can tell it to, hey, you know, increase your SPM by, you know, by 0.2 SPM, run just a little bit faster. Or, um, you know, in the context of a gas lift system, hey, increase your gas injection rate by, you know, 50 MCF per day. Um, so that we effectively get that well in a, in a more optimized state. Um, so that can be done with a human required to sort of click a button to accept or reject, you know, sort of having a human in the loop there. Or our ideal state where you really start to get the scalable value uh, is getting the human fully out of the loop and just having, you know, getting the, you know, uh, getting the trust to a place where humans are comfortable effectively giving the machine permission to make changes to those wells or, or changes to the control systems that are controlling that artificial lift equipment uh, so that you can sort of you know dial in or tweak the performance of those wells as um, 
Uh, as Keith mentioned earlier, these are these are non steady state systems. So you may you may have a guy that goes out there and honestly nails it from an optimization perspective for the moment of that well that he's he's out at that well site. And then I mean, six hours later, twelve hours later, three days later, the state of that well might change drastically, uh, and it may require a completely different different operating paradigm. So you know, this is this is AI, this is data, this is 24-7 sort of, you know, uh, ingestion and 24-7 processing through all these various models that we have. And so we can respond very quickly uh, and just, you know, be a, 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 a machine-based pair of eyes that is 24-7 monitoring the stream of data and making changes as necessary. That's really exciting to think about, especially as we talk about Keith's example earlier of every three to six months getting one set of eyes on the well now to being able to monitor the well 24 seven and the idea of once you get over that, that trust and accept that the machine can do a, a optimized job starting to not only do monitoring 24 seven, but also optimization 24 seven and really being was, able to make it. Yeah, I was Go just ahead. just to give you another concrete example. I was just reviewing this morning with one of our uh, our one of my my technical staff members um, a pilot report that we're just preparing to deliver to a let's say a very large gas producer. Um, and we've been running a, a pilot on their plunger lift wells. It's almost 50 wells and over about a, I think it was a 92 day period uh, we made uh, across, I think it was actually 46 wells, across the 46 wells over 92 days of the evaluation period, we delivered over 1700 set point changes. So basically commands to change how that system is being operated. Um, and the results were uh, a just under a 6% uh, improvement in production. And there were a bunch of other uh, sort of efficiency and reliability improvements that came along with that as well. Uh, but that was sort of the top line production impact for that, uh, that group of wells. So, I mean, it's a pretty, when you run the math on the, you know, current gas prices versus the production uplift, I mean, it's, it's a pretty compelling ROI on that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I'm trying to think about the, you have the production increase, but then also that aspect of reduction in electricity use and overall efficiency of that production. So to me, there are almost several different value streams here and potentially a, I guess you could call it a new market or, or a way to say we are producing our, our resource as best and as most sustainably as possible. Is there thinking thinking forward with something like certified natural gas or responsibly sourced natural gas, is there a way to start incorporating something like that, some type of certification in with all of these data and these improvements that you're generating? Well, I'm sure there is. We haven't gone down that road yet. I, I have been sort of, let's say, monitoring some of that, that uh, you know, uh, certified uh, petroleum products for a side of things. And sort of, you know, let's say I'm aware that it's going on, but it's probably some legwork that we need to do to get plugged into that, to be a part of that overall sort of responsibly sourced natural gas uh, and, you know, be a part of that process if we can. So, um, you know, it's something, something that uh, to do for our side in terms of a next step. Yeah. I'd love to, love to jump in. Cause I, I think it's a, it's a really fascinating area. And I'd say it's, 
um, not to use a baseball analogy, but it's sort of kind of first pitches of first inning in, in that space. Um, and, and, and it's broader than just, you know, the oil and gas industry, but what, what we're seeing play out across really the commodity space in general is this, this new level of transparency into how that, that commodity product, be that, you know, a molecule of gas, be that electron of electricity, be that cement, um, how do you actually, how is it actually produced and can you actually create a verifiable data stream that, that validates what was the overall uh, environmental impacts? And this isn't just emissions, this is water usage, this is land usage, this is a lot of different factors, but what are all the different sort of, you know, costs, environmental costs, if you will, of producing that, that commodity. And then you've got, and so the ability to physically do that, and, and I think the artificial lift space is a great example of now, you know, through solutions like Ambient, you've got that, you've got that history, you've got that data, but take that all the way back to when the well was, was drilled and completed and, and take that all the way through once that molecule is produced and sucked through, you know, a pipeline network into a, into a processing facility. If I can track all that, so that that's happening today and that kind of transparency is happening. But this other side of the equation that we're seeing really grow is the demand side here. So you, this is this has got to be a supply and demand equation. And the demand side is saying that there are buyers out there saying, hey, I'm willing to, to sign a, a longer term contract. I'm willing to pay a little bit more um, if you can verify clearly verify that this is a lower emissions product. We're seeing this happen very deeply in the LNG market, um, especially feeding LNG and gas into the European market, which have very high standards that they're trying to meet in terms of, of, of net zero and decarbonization. Uh, but we're also seeing this in the in the US market. We're seeing this as, as natural gas going into uh, utilities, feeding in just the overall sort of home heating and electricity. and you know, willingness at the consumer level for buyers to say, I'm willing to pay a little bit more to have that, to, to know that I'm, I'm, I'm consuming an electron that has a lower carbon footprint. Um, and so that market is starting to evolve. We're seeing um, operators right now capitalize that and, and physically cut contracts. But I would say it's, it's in the early days and that it's an inefficient market um, where, you know, contracts are being, being cut kind of on a one-off, one buyer to one seller. We're starting to see marketplaces evolve where you're starting to see you actually be able to sell those products at more on a spot market. But, you know, we're, we're clearly seeing this, this progression and, and, and the requests and questions we're getting from asset owners continue to, to support this, that we're evolving towards that, that more and more efficient market where you really be able to get more transparent pricing and really be able to, to run your business and think about new revenue streams and think about new profitability opportunities by being a low emissions producer. And it's not just a, I'm doing it out of the goodness of my heart, I'm doing it because of regulations, but the market is responding saying, you can actually get paid for doing this. And I think that's where you're really gonna see the scale start to kick in when sort of the, the dollars and cents all start to start to tie behind this, this, these net zero objectives. Well, Keith, sounds like I need to have an offline chat with you on all these topics here. <laughs> no problem, man. We'll go. We'll we'll go get a coffee or a beer. <laughs> that is, it's exciting to hear, and and definitely sounds like one of those aspects that one of those key pillars that you need is the monitoring and the data, the data ingestion, and then the ability to not only understand but trace from 
from the the sputting of the well all the way through kind of final product to really understand and and trace that that molecule from from subsurface all the way through to atmosphere well with that i go ahead I was going to jump in and add one thing. If there's one thing that we're, we're seeing, you know, maybe as a trend over the next five to 10 years, it's really leaning in. Everything you just described is around transparency and how do I just have more and more transparency in the operations? And, you know, I think the industry maybe has had some history of fighting against that transparency, but maybe an equal case being made of leaning into that transparency and, and the sort of the revenue and, 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 and sort of business opportunities that come from that. Um, I think that's a really exciting period for the industry. Yes, I agree. It is definitely an exciting opportunity and always looking for those different opportunities for how do you how can you make value from from essentially here being a a, a better producer. With that, I want to transition into the my final questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. You both get to answer them. So we will we'll start having Chris going first, and I'll just kind of go through each question, but you'll both answer each question at the same time. So Chris, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Well, Joe, I should have done my homework here. I know that you sent me those personal questions along. Um, I'll just... Uh... So I'm looking over, you know, I'm looking over my bookshelf right now and it's been a while since I read this one, but you know, given that I'm from the oil and gas industry and Keith also is, I'll say the prize by, uh, by Daniel Jurgen. It's one of those sort of like old, uh, classics. Well, maybe it's not that old in the grand scheme of things, but uh, you know, it's a really, really well-written, you know, thoroughly researched history of the uh, oil and gas industry going all the way back to, you know, pre-standard oil and pre-Carnegie. So it's, it is a, a bit of a fascinating history. I like that one. Keith, what about you? What's a favorite book that you would recommend? All right. I'm going to, I'm going to go, um, and I preface this with, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a historically, a, a data, a data person. I've sort of evolved into thinking about uses of data and, and, and how we run sort of industrial operations. But, uh, there's a book, the signal and the noise by Nate Silver, which is a, is a favorite of mine that really dives into, how do we get smarter and get um, misled by data, especially in, in really complex systems? And, um, and so it dives in everything from, um, from politics to industry to consumer behaviors of, of how do we use uh, data and probabilistic models in, in different ways to really understand what's, what's going on in the world, but also make better decisions. Um, so it's a really approachable um, sort of you know, fun, fun, read friendly way to, to dive into oftentimes there are some pretty complex, um, sort of data and, 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 and math and algorithm driven topics. That sounds like a, a good book. It almost reminds me of, uh, the Freakonomics series of books where it really is, it's data driven, looking at basic common everyday kind of things, but ultimately it all comes down to data. And this is a, this sounds like a interesting twist on it on how we can use data to lie, which is, or, or hopefully not always lie, but maybe, maybe find ways to bring unique insights into the world. 
Now, the next question I have, and Keith, let's have you go first this time. When will we be net zero as a society? Ooh, that's um, so I'm going to I'm going to I feel like that has to be answered with some uh, some caveats or maybe a mental model. I think we will start seeing large scale industries and companies be able to to fully um, kind of communicate that they are net zero in their operations in the kind of 2040, 2045 period as a, as a full society. I think there's going to be a long tail on this. Um, that's going to drive this kind of probably well past 2050. Uh, maybe if I had to put a number, I'm going to say 2060. But I think you're going to start seeing by 2040 and maybe even to the 2030s for some of the lighter industries. But I think for the heavy, heavy usage indus- industries over the next, you know, probably two decades away from really being able to, to claim full end to end everything scope one, two, three, my supply chain, my sourcing, everything. How have I driven that to net zero? Um, and, and start to see that, you know, companies and industries be able to, to communicate that at scale. Chris, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, I was going to say 2050, but then I agree with Keith 100%. There's going to be a long tail of laggards, whether it's, you know, very, very sort of immature developing countries or certain industries. So uh, maybe maybe by 2050, the, the net positives outweigh the net negatives, but I agree there, there will definitely be some laggards that hang out until, you know, 2060, 2070. So it's, it's going to be a journey. Now, I was, um, I'll maybe get off the beaten path here for a second. Uh, I wish I could quote you the name of this um, blog, but there is this uh, futurist who used to work for Wire Magazine back in the early 90s, published this sort of like what's happening in the next 20, 25 years from social and economic and um, political perspective. And he you know, nailed most of them, to be honest. So he just, and it's a, it's a group of folks, I shouldn't say just one, uh, but this group of folks just published a new version of what's going to happen over the next, uh, basically it's, it's their forecast through 2050. So certainly uh, an aspect of their forecast was related to energy tech and the sort of the, uh, the, the chase for, uh, for net zero. So, um, you know, he he definitely leaned heavily into energy tech would be one of the three uh, three major economic drivers over the next so I guess thirty what well, 20, 28 years here until twenty fifty um, so I'm I guess I'm hopeful that uh, you know the investment in infrastructure required uh, whether it's digital whether it's physical across the board for energy tech and some of these other sort of growth areas that they identified will really be a huge growth opportunity uh, obviously folks like AWS and a whole ecosystem of sort of climate tech players are chasing this hard and innovating hard. So I, I do think it's an exciting time to be in the, um, whether you're sort of fully, fully in the new energy clean tech space, or whether you're like us, like Ambient, who's you know helping, let's say, green what has traditionally been viewed as a dirty sort of uh, energy source. Yeah, I think that both answers are very good, very very uh, spot on and and really the goal there is thought provoking and and driving conversation and I think it it's it one thing just to point out as as we're talking about ambient the the thing you pointed out there that you are part of the incumbent energy industry but as a as a geologist and focused on the geothermal industry and we also work in CCS for this is all for for my day job. the The aspect is that we're we're going to continue having wells 
as we talk about, I was at a conference last week talking about hydrogen. And one of the things that is most exciting from my perspective, what these people were talking about is geologic hydrogen storage. So we're going to continue to have some type of wells. And I would say in CCS and hydrogen storage and geothermal, because of the because of the the importance of those wells, there is an added level of transparency that is required and almost increases the significance of the real-time monitoring aspect and understanding of that. So I think it's it's important to to understand that and see value where where there is value with everything being developed in energy and how we can apply that everywhere, including these future future use cases that some of these may not even be commercial yet. Yeah, I think we're one of the things we're I think has been really interesting is, is the progression around and sort of the strategic nature of of energy storage, be that hydrogen storage, be that battery technology. Um, if we sort of look at some of the challenges around intermittency and and really how to get access to to the cleanest energy possible, twenty four seven you know, 365 across the globe, that that storage layer becomes really, really interesting. And I've never been more optimistic of having a chance for the last five years, sort of really diving in with innovators in the space around, you know, new battery chemistries, around hydrogen, around carbon capture. Um, But it also, as as we dive in and work with them, understanding the scales and the timelines and the investments and the amount of people's lives they put into moving these technologies that realistically take take years and decades to get to scale um, so it's, I think it's a really exciting task but even the you know these great breakthroughs are, are going to take some time and energy and a lot of capital um, so there's a ton of fun to be had in the energy industry um, I, I continue continue to be incredibly excited about all the opportunities that keep popping up around every corner when it comes to energy transition and, and delivering clean energy yep absolutely. Well, the last question that I've got got is now you actually get to ask me a question. So, Chris or Keith, if one of you have your question ready, feel free to go. All right. You want to go, Chris? You want me to throw one out? You're up, Keith. All right. Um, So you get the opportunity to to interview and talk with a number of folks in the energy transition uh, space. So I'm going to, I'm going to go with what is, um, yeah, and you have to name one. What's the, what's the most exciting technology that you've been hearing about that can help drive decarbonization that could be decarbonizing existing industries that can be decarbonizing, you know, with new renewables, but what's the one that sort of gets you going like the heart, the heart racing and beating fast when you hear about it. Cause it's so exciting. Yeah. So typically I will not call out any one technology or one company because it is an all of the above solution. And we really do need every single aspect and we need to continue to develop every single aspect until we see clear winners and clear losers and we get to that net zero. Now, I I say typically I don't do that. I will say there is a there is a company that I really like. They are 
developing a a way to and I I'm going to forget exactly what the what the correct term is, but they are developing a way to to take plant matter and directly pull out the carbon from it. And so it is it is oxidative hydrothermal dissolution. I did have a company on my podcast who works on this called Thermaquatica. And basically what they're doing is they are they are taking organic plant matter, anything that is either either waste from the from the food industry or agriculture industry, any type of of dead tree limbs, all of that stuff. And before it breaks down and releases that carbon back into the atmosphere, they are pulling it out and and now capturing it, now ready to be sequestered or ready to go do what you need with it. And I think it's just so clever because the thing that they point out is when we're talking about direct air capture as one example, and we need something like direct air capture, but direct air capture, you're pulling... CO2 or carbon at the scale of hundreds of parts per million. Right now, we're close to 500 parts per million. That is the concentration of that CO2. When you're talking about pulling it carbon directly from plant matter, now you are, are essentially pure carbon that you're pulling from. You're in the 10s, 20s, 30% carbon that you are now extracting from. So there, and that's one of the things that you always learn about carbon capture, the higher the concentration of CO2 or of the carbon, typically the better that that technology is. So here, when we're pulling it directly from organic plant matter, it just makes so much sense. Now it's just a matter of figuring out and, and getting that commercialized, I think is is where it comes down to and making sure all of those other steps of are you competing with agriculture are you competing with food are you disturbing the the natural carbon cycle are there's are there aspects there that there are negative impacts those are the things we have to think about that was a long-winded answer but no, that was good. That was good. Sorry. I got, I got a question here for you, Joe. So um, as a software provider, you know, from the ambient perspective, um, where should we or other, you know, software companies that are looking to get, you know, bigger and better in the GHG and the, the, the ESG space, where should we be focused um, f- uh, in terms of uh, use cases or areas of the market that we should go look at sort of tackling. And I guess I'll give you some criteria, which are when, what are opportunities that will be big, fast, meaning, you know, big addressable market in, uh, you know, not particularly interested in something that's going to be a market in 15 years, but something that might be a market in five years, that's, you know, legitimately serviceable from a commercial perspective. So any ideas on that front? Yes. So one of the big markets, something that I'm very excited about is, is uh, heating and cooling inside of homes. Like that's not, that doesn't sound exciting, but one of the aspects of that are 
thermal energy networks and talking about thermal energy networks on a community scale. So there are several different companies that are working on putting in these thermal energy networks that are, I think some of them are hundreds of thousands of square feet and incorporating on the order of 20 to 50 or more buildings. And now with those in every single house, you've got a thermostat. Most of those you're going to have some type of heat pump. Most of those you're going to have, and then you have your ambient temperature loop. You're basically a, a, a lukewarm water loop that is your heat exchanging medium that now is interacting with every single point and every single point has their set point of saying, okay, we want the temperature in this house to be 70 Fahrenheit. But then the next house, maybe the next house is actually refrigeration storage. So there you need temperatures around 45 degrees Fahrenheit. And then the next house, maybe that next house is actually a data center that's always running and always pushing 80, 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And they actually need significant cooling. So there are all these different components and understanding and making the whole thermal energy network work efficiently and together in a nice, clean, efficient, all the time way. I think that's something that that I I support and think that all of these I think everything should kind of switch towards that route in terms of heating and cooling for the US. I know some places it's not it's not practical at this time, but I think all of those are going to have a layer of software on top of them to monitor and and drive the I guess the most efficient um operations. And I realize that is not necessarily the same thing that say Ambient does right now, but I think it is all very similar, similar components. Yeah, I think that our data scientists, if the data and the systems were in place, we could probably, you know, make some progress on that, uh, that tackling that problem fairly quickly. Yeah, so that's that's one of those areas where right now one of the big questions is where's the infrastructure coming from? Who is going to invest in that infrastructure? And then once you get those components, then it it feels pretty simple, but I think the optimization standpoint is where you start getting into those those deeper tiers of decarbonization and where you can start having a a way to run your entire heating and cooling system on say solar panels and a very small energy storage device so that you you can now have your heating and cooling fully decarbonized as opposed to needing several different types of backups some of those fossil fuel based so does the does the IRA provide investment or funding to enable uh, effectively a retrograde of a very large amount of infrastructure. It seems like that would be a future uh, legislative act, huh? Yes. Yeah. So that is a, a good question. 
And I don't recall what it says in the IRA in terms of that aspect, the heating and cooling side of it. But there are quite a few different components that are in the IRA. Now, the episode that was released last week, by the time this one airs, was actually with a lawyer, Eli Hinckley. He talked all about the IRA and a whole lot of different components to it and how that has changed the landscape for kind of larger scale um, green energy and, and climate resiliency investments. By the time this releases, the comment period is over. But right now, while we're recording, the the IRS has a comment period open for introducing, I guess, specifics on how they should implement the IRA. So you can still probably submit a comment by the time this airs, but they may they may not do anything with it. But all that to say, I agree, that aspect of retrograde, retrofitting to decarbonize heating and cooling is a, a very important aspect. And then also building on top of that, the efficiencies and having having those specific incentives for optimizing a system, not necessarily just building the system. I think that's also very important. Well, that's a good answer. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. With that, I want to thank you two for being on our show. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you want to say? Keith, let's have you go first and then, and then Chris, you can go after him. No, I think uh, just to close, I appreciate the the time, and and I always enjoy jump, diving into these topics, and um, it's it, it's sort of a it's a dive into complexity. It's a decarbonization is a highly complex problem, as you just described. There's lots of brownfield, you know, ret- retrofitting of what we already do, and new opportunities, and uh, and you know, I think my excitement in this space is around that there is great business opportunities to to deliver outcomes that are, have dramatic improvements on our overall sort of footprint on the environment. And that's just, that's just exciting each day, seeing each of these, uh, these new opportunities start to emerge and develop. Yeah. uh, Same for me here. Uh, Thank you, uh, Joe. Uh, Thank you, AWS. I guess I would be remiss to not mention how uh, happy we are to have so much support from our friends at AWS from a technical perspective, from a commercial perspective. So, you know, thanks to all of those, uh, those great folks. Much appreciated, Chris. Mm-hmm. Well, Chris, Keith, thank you again for joining me on the show today. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and let me know you're enjoying it by leaving a review. There will be a link in the show notes. If you want to hear more great news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with OGGN on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I am working to understand you, the audience, better so, so that I can continue to provide entertaining and educational shows. To keep doing this, I need your help. I have a one-question survey that I want you to fill out. The link is also in the show notes. If you go and fill that out, we will send you some OGGN stickers. 
Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you want to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.